you. I'm going to talk about a miracle this morning in part of what we're doing. I was looking out the window this morning, just on 10 o'clock as we were starting. Friends, if you come by car, you will not get parked unless there's a miracle. <laughs> All right. If you come by car, uh, you can't get in here at 10 o'clock uh, to park, because uh, obviously it fills up. A bigger miracle would be come a bit earlier, all right, and then you can get parked. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, Matthew, uh, sorry, John chapter 6, and I'm going to read at this moment just one verse, which is uh, verse 35, which will introduce us to our subject. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then you go to verse 48, and that is repeated, where it says, I am the bread of life. We are in John's Gospel for some weeks or months, and this is the first time we have hit one of the so-called I am's of Jesus. Uh, seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am. And you'll be familiar with other I am's, like I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. There are seven I am's. And uh, all scholars who look at the Bible and commentators say this clearly is meant to reflect the revelation of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, where God encounters Moses, and Moses says to God, who are you? What's your name? And God says to him, I am. And of course, it was to declare the fact that he always was, is, and always will be. Who is God? He simply is the I am. He always is. And that's what Jesus is doing in these seven I am's. He's reflecting the reality of his deity. He is God made flesh. But then, every time he says, I am, he gives a practical illustration to help us understand him and also to understand his significance to our lives. And that's what you've got here this morning in this saying, I am the bread of life. And this chapter is almost all about bread. And it begins with a miracle which most of you will be very familiar with, a very famous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to read it through from verse 1. And just to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing those who were ill. This is not the only time in the Gospels when it's made clear that people didn't gather to Jesus because of what he taught, they gathered to him because of what he did. And here he was healing people, and so the crowds began to come along and to assemble. And uh, when Jesus had assembled the crowds and miracles had been performed, then he took the opportunity with a captive audience, really, to preach and to teach them. Now, that should remind us that what we do is important. It's not just our words, it's what we do is important. I mean, if we had some substantial healings here, that would draw a crowd. You know, it's one thing to pray for. But even at the level of uh, greeting people, one another, being kind and friendly, that's a, you know, a way that people might come back uh, to hear the Word of God, um, because there are things that we do. And then we go on in verse 3, and we read, Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? 
He asked this only to test him, for he had already made, had in his mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half the year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, what we read is that Jesus tests Philip uh, at this stage, as the crowds are gathering, they need to be fed, and it's a kind of a crisis situation because there's no food around. And Philip is tested by Jesus at this point. Will he trust Jesus or will he try to work it out in an impossible situation? And I think, in a way, this story tests us also because you can read this story and say, Did Jesus really do this? Did he really break a few loaves and a couple of fish and feed thousands of people? Or can we work out what happened another way? Uh, In the 1950s, there was quite a famous uh, Bible commentator called William Barclay, and he wrote a a commentary on every book of the New Testament. And when he came to the uh, Gospels, he went out of his way to kind of work out what happened with the miracles and to explain them, to work it out. And so when he came to this particular miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, what William Barclay said probably happened was this, that there was uh, one boy there who saw that there was a crisis in feeding the crowd, so he had a few loaves and a couple of fish, and he came and offered them to the disciples. Well, he was only a youngster, and when other people saw him doing that, well, they also had picnics tucked away. Uh, So what they did is that they reached into their bag and they got out their picnics. And in the end, there was enough to feed 5,000 and more people. So that's how William Barclay explained it. And he explained every miracle in that kind of way. Now, listen to this. He then said how firmly he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you see the total illogicality of that? The one who has the power to rise from the dead, my friends, he's got the power to feed 5,000 people from a few loaves and fish. In verse 8, we read, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, make the the people sit down. Uh, There is plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Obviously, there were women and children as well. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. I wonder how you picture this. Jesus is given these five loaves and these two fish, and he breaks them, and in some way they multiply And he gives them to the disciples, and they go off and feed. But surely they couldn't feed too many, and they keep running back to Jesus and saying, we need some more bread, some more fish. I don't think it happened like that at all. I think when Jesus broke the five loaves and the two fish, he put some in the hands of each of the 12 disciples, and the disciples went out and found it multiplied in their hands. And so each of them was able to feed hundreds of people. And again, it's easy to draw a lesson from this. What's Jesus put into our hands that could be multiplied as blessing to others? You know, somebody has been able to pick up a guitar and to play a tune this morning, and that multiplies blessing to us. Uh, Other people are able to, to serve in some way, and as they serve, 
literally sometimes bread and wine. That multiplies blessing to us. What is it that Jesus has put into your hands that can be multiplied to others? And then you go to verse 12, and we see how the story goes on, that when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. What do you think happened here? Now I, for many years, used to think it like it like this. Well, obviously, it was in a bit of a wilderness place. There were no litter bins. And so here were these thousands of people, and they were eating some bread and fish, and obviously bits and pieces got dropped on the ground. So in the end, uh, when they'd all gone away, it looked like Bournemouth Beach after a hot weekend in the summer, or even Glastonbury after all the crowd had left. And so Jesus said, we need an environmental cleanup here uh, to to sort this out. I doubt if it was like that. You need to pay close attention to the text. In verse 11, it says that they gave everyone as much as they wanted. Now, this was a poor society. Food would always have been an issue. And here was some free food being given out. And they can have as much as they want. What are some of these people going to do? They're going to grab a lot of the food. They're going to take as much as they think they want. But in the end, they grab so much that some of them have got too much. And this, in one way, is a demonstration of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that it's full of abundance. There's nothing stingy about the kingdom that Jesus is ruling and reigning over. And so there are some people there that simply have got too much now. And so Jesus says nothing should be wasted. And so there's a collection of all the spare food that is left over. That's what happened here. But then you've got to ask, well, what did they do with it when they collected it up? Well, have you noticed that they collected up 12 basketfuls? How many disciples were there? Nobody knows. There were actually 12 disciples, all right? So I reckon that was one basketful each, all right? I can imagine Matthew going home and uh, his wife saying to him, hey, did you have a good day at the office? And he, he said, yeah, great, actually, we've got some free food today. We can stick it in the freezer. There's plenty of it. And so they would have had enough for each disciple to take a basketful home. Uh, so this is not an environmental clean-up, it's an evidence of abundance. And then in verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is a prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There's been a surplus because Jesus has done this miracle with the bread and the wine, and so much was left over at the end. You know, when you come up to a a, a general election, very often people will say things like, well, what are the issues facing us uh, as we look at voting in a new government? And very often the reply comes back, it's the economy, stupid, (laughs) right? Because that's always what people are really interested in, Can we have a government that economically is going to benefit us? Well, Jesus has solved the economic problem here. They were hungry. There was no food. But Jesus multiplied it out. Everyone had all they wanted to eat, plus there is a surplus. What are you going to do? That's the person we want as king. He can handle the economy. And so they want to make Jesus king. But Jesus is not the kind of king 
that they want him to be, as we know, as we read on in the Gospels. And at this point, he slips away. Well, right, there was a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. We're still talking about bread, and secondly, we go to manna. Because following this miracle, Jesus takes the opportunity to talk about manna. And in the Old Testament, if you remember the story, the Israelites were in the wilderness, they were traveling from Egypt eventually to the Promised Land, and the big issue was food. What could they eat? And you will remember, I'm sure, that God provided manna from heaven, a bread-like substance that arrived every day on the ground so that they could collect it and eat it. Now, that's given great emphasis in the Old Testament, and if you ever have time, do a study on food in the Bible. I tell you, there's a massive amount on food in the Bible. The disciples were always very keen to get their meals. You'll find that as you go through the Gospel. They're very anxious about food. And as you come into the New Testament, you'll find that there is a great deal on this subject Even in the miracle that we have just looked at, besides the resurrection of Christ, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's reported in all four Gospels. Obviously, it was a food miracle. That must go into every Gospel. And in some ways, even more extraordinary, in Mark's Gospel, he recalls a similar miracle not only the feeding of the 5,000, but on a later occasion, the feeding, miraculously, of 4,000. And you may say, well, why is that strange? Because the Gospel of Mark is extremely clipped. It's very brief. Uh, It's fast-moving. It's the shortest Gospel. And Mark doesn't waste any words while writing his Gospel. And yet, having talked about the feeding of the 5,000, he puts in an almost identical miracle in the feeding of the 4,000 which goes to show again just how keen the disciples were on the subject of food. Jesus' time, food was a big issue. People were on a simple diet, and bread was the main component. And therefore, bread becomes a symbol of food as a whole. And actually, if you think about it, it still is. People even now sometimes say, I need to get a job because I've got to put bread on the table. Uh, We probably eat quite a lot of bread, all of us, but not as much as some cultures even now. I mean, if you go to France, it always seems bread's much more important in France than it is in England. If you ever go self-catering in France, you'll know this, that in the early morning, everybody's down the bakers to get their baguettes. And I've done this on occasion. I've been in self-catering accommodation, so I go down to the local boulangerie, and I say in my best French, de baguettes civil play. Uh, and uh, the person behind the counter rolled their eyes, and uh, sometimes they give you the two baguettes and say in perfect English, there you are, sir, two baguettes, three euros, please. (laughs) Now, in his teaching, Jesus reminds them of the manna that was given in the Old Testament. See there in verse 31. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The trouble with manna, as with all bread, is that it satisfies for a time, but then you need more. And then Jesus is very blunt about this. So in verse 49, he says, Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. 
If you go down to verse 58, he says the same thing. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. So he's very blunt about it. If you eat bread, very soon you need some more bread. But however much bread you eat, you die. Because Jesus is offering an alternative. That's why he says this. He's offering an alternative. To give them bread that will satisfy them forever. And not surprisingly, the crowds want that bread. Verse 34, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then, uh, if you go to verse 51, Jesus says a very similar thing when he says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. And of course, what is happening here is that Jesus is offering himself as the bread that will satisfy forever. But I want you to take note here of two verses very particularly, because Jesus' offer becomes with a guarantee. I want you to really notice this. In verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, I want you to focus on that because I know from my pastor experience that the number one problem for very many Christians is, can I lose my salvation? I've been asked that question way more than any other in the course of my ministry. I want you to notice this clear answer to that question by Jesus in verse 39 here. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God. And don't treat will of God there kind of lightly. This is his will. This is what he hopes for. It's much, much, much stronger than that. The will of God is that which will be done. You need to understand that. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. The whole issue with our losing salvation is always that we take our eyes off, off God and put them on ourselves. That we think that in some way, my salvation depends upon me. But it's God's initiative, that's clear here. Jesus is given people by the Father. It's an initiative taken by God. And it comes with a guarantee that I will lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Can you imagine God saying to Jesus, I gave you that person, but I'm sorry I made a mistake there. We need to withdraw that one and take away their salvation. Can you imagine that happening? Or put it somewhat differently, we say God gives us eternal life. That's how we sometimes speak of salvation. God gives us eternal life. If God has given us life that lasts for eternity, how can God take it away again? He's given it to us forever. The idea that God would remove that eternal life is ludicrous. Eternal life is eternal life. He's given it to us forever. Now, A lot of you are sitting there and immediately thinking, ah, but, 
and you've got a problem in your mind. And the problem will always go something like this. I knew this guy, and he was a really sincere Christian. He gave every evidence of being a Christian. Uh, he led a small group, for example, and uh, he was well involved in the Christian church and in the Christian life. Clearly, you know, he was a Christian, but now you look at him, he met another woman who wasn't his wife, had an affair, he's gone away from the church, he doesn't believe anything anymore. Surely he has lost his salvation. And that's a very real pastoral issue. I'm not going to overlook that. I'm not going to fudge that because that's real and that's what people think when they hear this subject being discussed. But what I want to say to you this morning, my friends, is this. And you'll need to listen to me very carefully here because at some point you could misunderstand, especially if you don't hear my conclusion. You must listen to me. There are three possibilities with somebody like that. The first possibility is this that they were never truly of Christ. Now, the reality is, you can get very close to Christ, and you can hear the teaching, and you can appear to be living the life, though let me say, none of us really knows what goes on in a person's life behind the scenes, so we've got to be careful there. But actually, although they've got close to Christ, they've never, in fact, really belonged to Christ. And there's a clear example of that in the Bible, and that's Judas Iscariot. He was with Christ. He was one of the twelve. He was given responsibility amongst that community for the, for the finance. And yet, in the end, for all that Judas saw and heard and pressed close to Christ, he was never truly of Christ. And you have to accept that, that some people simply have never actually, in the end, belonged to Christ. A second possibility is that the person is backslidden. And that means that they are truly Christian, but they move away from Christ for a time. But because they are true believers, at some point they return. Now, I have a multitude of stories for this, but one that is a particular favourite of mine is this. Years ago, when I was pastoring in Brighton, uh, a single mother came to me and she was very dedicated to the faith and to the church. She had quite a strong prophetic ministry. And she came into my study and she said, John, I've met this guy and I don't care what you say, I'm leaving the faith, I'm leaving the church, I'm going to go and get married to this guy. And it doesn't matter what you say, I'm going. And with that, she walked out. In my heart, I really believed that she was a true Christian. And so I continued to pray for her. And at times in our church, we used to have seasons of prayer for backsliders, I'd mention her by name, uh, and then as the time went on, perhaps I forgot her name uh, as such, but we would still pray for backsliders, and, you know, she was caught up in that kind of wider prayer. So it was years later, she walks back into my study, and she said, John, I cannot deny who I am and what I truly believe, and whatever the cost, I'm coming back to church and to the faith. And Sharon has remained a prominent member of Emmanuel Church in Brighton ever since, a strong prophetic ministry, once again being used to the blessing of the church. So, one of the things that will underline this to you is that is where some of you have been. You strayed away for a time, but you came back because you're a true believer. There is a third group I would suggest, and that is 
those that are truly of Christ, but never seem to return. Now, I think that Ananias and Sapphira fall into that category. It is possible as a Christian to be judged by God in the flesh for serious sin, and that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they died. But I think if you look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, everything in that story would actually point to the fact they were true believers. But they fell into serious sin, and God judged them in the flesh in that moment. And probably they will have lost all reward as they enter heaven and glory. That's another subject, but that's probably what will have happened. Now, this is why I said you must listen to my conclusion. Please hear me. We don't know which category a person is in. And that means that we treat them as we find them. And whatever a person might say about previous faith, if they're living like a pagan, I will treat them as a pagan and say you need to turn to Christ, to repent and to believe the gospel. I've even known some people who said something like this, well, yes, I've, I've gone away from living for Christ. I know I'm in this kind of lifestyle now, but I went to this evangelistic rally years ago and I went forward and I gave my life to Christ and it's once saved, always saved, isn't it? No, I will treat them as an unbeliever because they're presenting as an unbeliever. My friends, only God knows who it is. But I want you to see here this morning, if you're a believing Christian, that this is a guarantee for you from Jesus Christ. This is the will of God who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Do I get a hallelujah for that? Hear it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, I hope what I've said there will be of help to you because I know it worries a lot of Christians. Okay, a brief word about metaphor as we look at uh, a few other verses in this particular chapter. So we've had the miracle uh, and then we've had manna and now we've got metaphor. John's gospel is remarkable for its simplicity and for its depth. So you've got the very famous stories. You have water being changed into wine. You have healing at the pool of Bethesda. You have the woman at the well. You have Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. You have the feeding of the 5,000. You have the raising of Lazarus. These are favorite stories. If you like, this is the simple part of John's gospel that we can read here and understand. But you also get a depth of teaching in John's Gospels to the extent that some of the crowd listening to Jesus, and it occurs in this chapter, say this, is, this teaching is too hard. Who can accept it? And we read here that some of the disciples walked away from Jesus. Now the word disciple here does not refer to the twelve. These were the wider group of disciples. But some of them said this teaching is too hard and they walked away. And so Jesus says to the twelve, it's all in this chapter, Jesus says to the twelve disciples, do you want to leave too? And Peter replies, but to whom shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. 
And really, John's Gospel, this is not a brilliant illustration, but I, I sometimes see it like a swimming pool. There's a shallow end. And that's kind of easy. You can splash around and enjoy the shallow end. It's all very safe, and it's a water into wine sort of end, and the raising of Lazarus, and you can enjoy that and splash around there. But my friends, there's also a deep end to John's Gospel, and you can be quickly out of your depth. And we are at the deep end in this discussion about bread. So listen to verse 53 to 56. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. Now, you know we have a communion, a breaking of bread service. You will also, many of you, be aware that in the Roman Catholic Church, they have what is called the Mass. And in that Mass, they take bread and wine. And Roman Catholic teaching is that the bread becomes literally the flesh of Jesus, and the wine becomes literally the blood of Jesus. It doesn't change in the way it looks, but it changes in essence. So the bread is literally Christ's flesh, and the wine is literally Christ's blood. My friends, I want to say absolutely not. What we have here is metaphor. That's a fancy word for picture language. Jesus had seven I ams, and he uses metaphor. Jesus says, I am the door. Nobody believes that Jesus is a literal door, right? But you know what he means. The only way into the kingdom is to go through Jesus. He's the door. Jesus says, I am the vine. Well, nobody believes that Jesus is a literal vine with grapes hanging off him. But Jesus is saying this, that actually because you're like branches... You are attached to me who is the vine, and therefore attached to me, you can bear fruit. It's a metaphor. And so, it's picture language. So, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, eating his flesh is picture language. It's a metaphor. You must take Christ into your life. But there is one very difficult verse here, and I'm not going to jump it, because I believe in not jumping over scriptures. A lot of commentaries jump over these kind of verses. I'm going to deal with it. Verse 55, and Jesus says, For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And that does sound very Roman Catholic. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. My friends, it's not. Again, it's metaphor. Jesus is saying, you eat ordinary bread, but it only satisfies for a time. I'm the real bread. In this sense, that if you take me into your life, I satisfy for eternity. I'm the bread of life. I'm the real bread. Therefore, my friends, we must have Christ. And Jesus uses this vivid picture to make it clear. Now, this is not teaching on the communion service. We have not yet reached the time of the Passover when Jesus inaugurates the communion service. So the Roman Catholics are wrong at that level too. This is not a teaching on the communion service. The flesh and blood references make it seem like that. 
What we need to understand this morning is this. When we eat the bread this morning, we are called to remember that Jesus is the real bread. We receive him into our life, and we get eternal life, and we get eternal security. He will raise us up on the last day. So, this is all about bread. I kind of tried to slice the loaf for you. (laughs) It's a miracle. And it's a miracle of abundance, which is what the kingdom provides for us and reminds us what's in our hands to distribute to others. There's manna. Bread came from heaven to feed the Israelites, and they got hungry again, and then they died. But Jesus has come from heaven to to satisfy our spiritual hunger. He feeds us so we can live forever, and he will keep us. And there is metaphor. It is essential that we feed on the living bread, and Jesus is the real bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Hallelujah. Let's stand together, can we? (laughs) Why shouldn't we believe for some miracles here this morning? Let's stir ourselves. I know that this is August, well, nearly August, (laughs) it's end of July. End of July, coming into August. We're into the summer holidays, people are away, people are on holiday, we can all feel a bit sleepy and dozy, but why shouldn't God do miracles amongst us? Some of you here this morning, you've got, you've got health problems. Now, if it's appropriate, just put your hand uh, somewhere that would identify where the problem is. Uh, that may not be appropriate for everybody, but if you've like, got a bad heart, put your hand on your heart. Let's just stand before God. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he did miracles. If there was power to raise Christ from the dead, there was power for him to do a miracle to feed 5,000 or more people. And that power is not switched off today. It's available for the people of God today. We need to press into Jesus. Jesus, do a miracle. You're the living bread. You're the real bread. And Lord, we pray for miracles here this morning. And Lord, where people are sick, I pray that you will make them well in the name of Jesus. And I pray for rheumatism and arthritis and heart trouble, hip problems, neck problems. I pray for those who feel mentally unwell. Lord Jesus, bring your health, bring your healing. Lord, we pray that out of our little prayers that we have in our hands, that there may come multiplied blessing as you, the living God, the reigning King Jesus and the working Holy Spirit work in people's lives here this morning to bring health and healing to the glory of your name and to the honor of Jesus. Amen.